0: everyone. Welcome to the Outpost Community Church Podcast. My name is Natalie, and I'm excited to introduce this week's message from our Who is Jesus series. We hope you enjoy listening, and have a wonderful week. Well, you don't have to work hard to find tragedies in the news today, do you? Of course not. The world is filled with tragedy. And I can give you example after example after example that you don't need. But I got a question. What is the greatest tragedy of them all? What is the greatest tragedy? Do you know? Well, I believe that the greatest tragedy is that people don't know who Jesus is. It's the greatest tragedy anyone could ever experience in their life. Beyond divorce and rape, murder, miscarriage, and manipulation, the greatest tragedy, bar none, is not knowing who Jesus is. When I lead a funeral or attend a funeral or hear that somebody has died, one of the questions I have is, were they a Christian? Because I ask this because The answer determines everything about their life and their life after death because it's astronomically different than those who do not know Jesus. Those of us who know Jesus still face tragedy and suffering and loss and pain and all those things, but none of it is meaningless because none of it is without hope, as Paul says in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, that us are those who know who Jesus is and believe in him. For us, tragedy and pain are not meaningless. Not so those who don't know Jesus, though. Solomon goes into great detail in Ecclesiastes to show that no matter how much money or work, success, pleasure, houses, food, and drink that you have, all of it is meaningless if you do not know who God is. Because in the end, you're going to die. And after you die, as Hebrews 9.27 says, appointed that man should die, and after that comes judgment. But verse 28 says, For those who know Jesus, and so Christ, having been offered once for the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For those who do not know Jesus, the horror of judgment awaits them. But for those who do know Jesus, there's an eagerness and joy, even in death, Because knowing who Jesus is changes everything about everything. Jesus says it like this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's John 17, 3. Now, if this is true, then perhaps the greatest tragedy really is that those who know Jesus don't help everyone else who doesn't know Jesus know who he really is. They're sitting around eagerly waiting for Jesus, but they leave their friends to pass into judgment unaware of what they will face, Let me give you an example. A while back, I was talking with a Christian brother who was going on vacation with some Mormon friends. He knew that his Mormon friend needed to know the truth about who Jesus really was, but he was struggling with talking to him about it because he didn't want to ruin the vacation or the friendship, which makes sense. We all understand that. So he asked me, what do you think? And I said, well, listen, what you do on this vacation is up to you. But you are going to lose your friend no matter what. You have to decide when you want to do it. Possibly now because you offended him by telling him who Jesus really is, or when he stands before Jesus and hears Jesus say, depart from me, I don't know you, and you don't know me. Friends, the greatest tragedy in life and life and afterlife, is not that your friends don't like you because you mentioned Jesus and shared the gospel. The greatest tragedy is that you've been fooled into silence because of a deficiency in your own knowledge of who Jesus is. And let's be real, everybody is deficient in their knowledge of who Jesus really is. But this handicap as a believer in Christ can lead us to believe quotes like, quote, share the gospel and use words when necessary, end quote. This is often attributed to Francis of Assisi, but the problem is Francis never said it, and number two, it's not biblical. Paul says in Romans 10, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching or teaching or telling them who Jesus is? So our lack of knowledge about Jesus can sometimes lead us to say nonsense like, well, they're a good guy, or he's a sweet boy but Jesus says no one is good except God alone. Good guys and sweet boys will suffer in hell just like bad guys and sour boys. The difference is not in what they think and feel. It's in what they think about Jesus. They cannot think anything about Jesus, friends, if we do not tell them who Jesus is. And that's why this series, Who is Jesus? is so important. And and that's why this today's message is so important for us as metamodernists and maybe Mormons who listen or biblical Christians, because knowing who Jesus is changes everything about everything. And my goal in this whole series has been uh, the same. It's to create clarity between Mormonism and Christianity, to celebrate Jesus, and to leave you thankful for who Jesus is if you follow the one true Christ. Now, last week we looked uh, at God through the lens of metamodernism, Mormonism, and biblical Christianity, and we l- clarified um, the God who is triune, okay? Um, in that message, I clarified that the Mormon view of Jesus uh, is that he is a created spirit child of the Father, who is also a spirit child of another celestial Father and Heavenly Mother. They believe that Jesus died for their sins. Okay, not as God incarnate, but rather as an elder spirit brother to us. And today we're going to be looking through John 1, 43 51 to see what the Bible says and means by the titles Son of God, King of Israel, and Son of Man. And it's my hope that you will come to see with me that Jesus is not a spirit child of God, but he really is God in the flesh. And so we're going to break it down in three sections. One first is invite you to come and see. That's verses 43 and 46. Then we're going to look at Son of God, King of Israel. What does that mean? And then finally, we'll look at Son of Man. Why does he call himself Son of Man more than anything else? And so first, let's start with come and see. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. It's uh, an all-time classic, but in Saving Private Ryan, there's a group of men who are, the whole movie, risking their life to find Private Ryan, okay? And they're fighting in a war zone it 's oppressive it 's terrible it 's an awful, awful movie, but they 're seeking to find this guy, and that 's their hope is to find him and get him back as safe as possible now, in the cultural context that Jesus is living in, uh, there are kings called the Herods, and the Herods were horrible people, they represented Rome the Jewish people are under subjugation, under their authority. Uh, The Jews are heavily taxed, right? They're abused. There is slavery. It's extremely oppressive. And so there's this tension in the Jewish people, okay? But there's also in this tension a hope. And the hope is that one day the Messiah is going to come, the Christ. Now, there's been several saviors, several, quote, Messiahs or Christs that rose up during the time right before Jesus, you know, Theodos and Judas the Galilean, but both of these men died and their followers disappeared, okay? But now what we're going to see is that Philip, who is a Jew, living in this culture, hoping in the Christ, hoping the Messiah, even though several have come, still has a hope, and he comes up and he's going to tell his friend that he has found the one, the one that they're all hoping for. And this is what John 1, 43, starting in verse 43 through 46 says, Now, I want to connect this to the metamodernist who's listening. In this series, we've covered the worldview experience of metamodernism. Now, it's people just like maybe you and me who are very open to ideas and stories and philosophies, Right, The metamodernist is not just, hey, there's no meaning in the world, there's no truth, they're, they're open. And in my opinion, this openness carries a sense of hopefulness. It's like a longing to find something that can serve me, meet my needs, play the role of savior in my life. Uh, that could give me some some meaning and direction. And many uh, metamodernists are open to this. Now, they're a lot like, if you know your Bible, Acts 17, the Athenians. Okay? Paul, who is a missionary, travels and arrives in Athens, and he sees that they have thousands of idols all over the place, above doorposts and on street corners and giant buildings. And uh, they even have an idol to an unknown God. It's like the just-in-case idol. You know what I mean? Now, I want to give you a list of some of these idols. And I think that when you hear the names, maybe there's not much of a connection, but when you hear what the names represent, you go, oh, okay, I kind of understand what the Greeks were looking for here. So there's uh, you guys probably heard of Athena, Poseidon, Artemis, Dionysus, Hermes, now, you may not worship these gods, but Athena is the god of wisdom and war. And if you're listening to this podcast, some of you maybe uh, you know fought in war and soldiers or you uh, value success in war and uh, maybe you like guns or whatever the case may be. Maybe you value wisdom, right? And you think it's a really important part of life is to be wise, or maybe uh, you were uh, you know in the Navy or you 've served uh, or uh, worked on the sea, so Poseidon to you would be per, uh, would be somebody you go man i don 't want to upset this guy I would love for the seas to be fair i 'd love to be able to travel I would be able to uh, you know uh, like import and export goods, whatever the case may be. Artemis was the god of the hunt now if you 're listening to this and you 're from Cody Wyoming, hunting is something that is important to us, and so for them, they called it Artemis, the god of the hunt, and they would worship the god of the hunt, hoping that they would have great hunts. And then Dionysus is the god of wine and parties. No doubt we as a culture love those. And then Hermes is the god of travel. He's like the god of the VW van, okay? And so these gods, whether you call them by this name or not, okay, are just representations of the very same things that we latch, latch onto in our culture. The Athenians were just like us. They were looking for life and prosperity and wisdom and war and in the sea and in hunting and drinking and travel. But in all of their searching, listen, it still wasn't enough. Listen, like what says I'm still looking like an altar to an unknown God? Like a like a, a concrete pad that just has an emblem says to an unknown God and there's nothing on top of it. It's saying basically, like, hey, listen, there's still a void in my heart. I've got all these gods, I've got all these things that I'm doing in my life, but I'm still looking. There's got to be something out there. There's a hopefulness to this, and so, meta modernists are similar in that they're searching. Seventy six percent describe themselves as spiritual, and a majority of them say that they're looking for meaning. But many of them have felt, you know, disenfranchised, like Nathaniel in this story. They say, can who's, you know, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And maybe the Metamodernist says, can anything good come out of Christianity? Now I want to turn to looking at Philip's response here. Philip does not give a list of proofs. He was like, come on, Nathaniel. I mean, I've met you and I both have met some guys from Nazareth who are decent dudes. You know, he doesn't make an argument. All he does is give Nathaniel an invitation. What does he say? Come and see. Listen, I'm not going to defend this guy. Come see him for yourself. Now, if you attend Outpost Community Church, you know that behind the seats we have a little card. It's a top three card is what we call it, or a step-by-step card. And uh, what we do is on one side, there's three lines where you can put three names that we pray every single day. It's the shape of a bookmark. You can put it in your Bible. highly recommend that you grab one. And you can pray for those three names every day as you open up your Bible, right? And I've got one that's in my journal that I pray for three people on that list. Well, on the back side is four steps to introducing your friends to Jesus. Basically, four steps of come and see. Number one, become their friends. Just become their friend, right? Philip was Nathaniel's friend. Number two, introduce them to your friends, right? He probably uh, introduced them to Andrew and Peter as well. Number three is introduce them to... God's word, right? Don't give an argument, say just come read it for yourself. And number 4, introduce them to Jesus. Now we know that within the first 3 they're going to start meeting Jesus before they even realize it. But the goal of every Christian is not to be the friend for Jesus but to be uh sort of like a mutual friend between Jesus and your your friend, right? Like to you want them to ultimately see who Jesus is and so Philip just says come and see. It doesn't mean that truth and answers are not important they're very important but the greatest truth about Christianity is that God the father through Christ the son is inviting you into a relationship and so i invite you friend just come and see come and read his word and get to know who he is and so the story continues and we're going to see two titles that nathaniel's about to give to jesus that are pretty astounding so son of god king of israel and so jesus saw nathaniel this is verse 47 coming towards him. And he said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. That's Jesus Jesus just proclaiming to, to Nathaniel. And Nathaniel said back to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, multiple times in this passage, if you go back and read this, you're going to see that multiple times it says that Jesus saw somebody or somebody was being seen. Now, Jesus is presently seeing Nathaniel walk up to him because he's talking to Nathaniel as he says this. But Jesus is showing that he doesn't just sees presently, he sees perceptively. Jesus sees him even when Jesus is not around him. This is totally a claim to deity. And also, he sees who Nathaniel really is. Now, have you ever seen the, you know, the, um, the Jesus TV show? Uh, you, you know that Nathaniel's like probably one of the most he's kind of blunt, right? And in, in the Gospels, you can kind of infer that he's a very blunt guy. like, what could, comes out of Nazareth? How do you even know who I am? Jesus says he's of no deceit, which means really he's of no guile, which means he's not a double-minded person. He's very straightforward, he says what he means, right and he's willing to say it. And so when he says, "How do you know me?" He's saying, "How do you know who I am? What kind of person I am?" And so even though you've never met him. And so Jesus, Nathaniel says to Jesus, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. He calls him a teacher. He is like exploding with like this, like, wow. Like, I've never met you yet. You saw me there, which only God could have seen me. And number two is you know who I am, right? So it's really, really impressive, okay? so there's no way that Nathaniel could really understand what he was saying back to Jesus. He calls him the son of God, King of Israel. There's no way that Nathaniel fully understands this meaning. Um, because, and we know that because Jesus says, you believe because of that, wait until you see the full picture. You're going to see it here in a little bit. And that's exactly what it's like with Jesus. Okay. So if you're a Christian, you know that the journey of Jesus is a constant discovery of who he is. Like the Christian experience is uh, not a journey through moral progression, though you do get better, become good, that's a natural consequence of spending time with Jesus. It's not a seminary course where you just learn facts and things about Jesus. It's more than that. The Christian journey is like a marriage. It's a relationship that's built on trust and dependency that cultivates a oneness between you and God. It's a discovery of another that changes you as you come to know the true beauty of who Jesus is. And Nathaniel is just getting started with Jesus and he's starting off pretty well. He calls him the son of God, king of Israel, which is like calling him the goat, right? Now, there's a running argument. Who's the goat, right? In football, when it comes to quarterbacks, who's the goat? What do you think? Brady or Peyton Manning? In basketball, how about Jordan or LeBron James? Which one's the goat? Messi or Ronaldo, all right? Of course, it's Messi. Uh, probably just made somebody cringe for a second, but then also it's like, okay, who's the goat? Who's the greatest? Is it Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Gandhi, or is it Jesus? Who is the goat? Well, Nathaniel calls him son of God, king of Israel. Now it's important. There's a lot of meaning to these words. Why would a Jew say this? Well, first of all, second Samuel chapter seven, let me take you to the old Testament when God is talking to David, king of Israel. In 2 Samuel 7 verse 12, he says, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, if you keep re- reading, you know that this, this verse has a double meaning or a double fulfillment. He's talking to David about Solomon, who's going to come right after that. But many Jews appropriately and Christians appropriately see this as a covenant that God is making with David David about a future king, a future Messiah or Christ. It's the foundational verse for Nathanael's declaration, son of God, king of Israel. And if you fast forward to Luke chapter one, when the angel Gabriel comes to meet with Mary, he says this, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus knew who Nathanael was before he ever met him, but Nathanael had no clue how right he was about Jesus. And so as I said before, Philip and Nathanael were like everyone else in their day. They were expectantly and hopefully waiting for the arrival of Messiah, right? As you would be too if you were under oppression. And there was these covenants, these promises in your scripture. And their circumstances intensified their desire for him to come. And so the Messiah was thought to be a king uh, who would establish Israel as a dominant power in the world. Now, why did they think that? They thought that because of the song in Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, verses 1 through 2, very important understanding of of the Messiah. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now that... The Hebrew word for anointed there is malek, Mashiach, which is where we get the word Messiah. And it literally means anointed king. Now, in the Greek counterpart to this word, it, uh, the Greek counterpart is Christos, is where we get the word Christ. So Messiah and Christ mean king, the one chosen to rule and whose rule will never come To an end. And so when first century Jews call Jesus the Messiah or the Christ, they are drawing from this Jewish song, they're drawing from uh 2 Samuel chapter 7, these images of a king of eternal power and glory, someone who is from God and much more than that. Psalm 2, 6 through 7 goes on to say, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So what does all this mean? Well, Nathaniel's proclamation, son of God, king of Israel, carries far greater weight than a first century Jew could understand, not to mention a 21st century Christian. But then the question is, did Jesus claim these titles for himself? This is important in, in clarifying the difference of view of who Jesus is between Mormonism and Christianity. What does Jesus say about himself? Well, in John chapter 5, he says this, but Jesus answered them, my father... God is Father, a very rare thing, is working until now, and I am working. And listen to this. This is why the Jews, verse 18, were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, and this is what it says, making himself equal with God. So unlike Mormon theology, which interprets Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, to literally mean that he is created Son of a Heavenly Father and a Heavenly Mother, the Jews appropriately, and Christians as well, interpreted Jesus' statement to mean that uh, exactly what God was intending, which is that Jesus is equal with God. And so much more than that, actually. In John 8, uh, Jesus says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old, and have you, uh, have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, Jesus, you go, what, what's the importance of this I am? Why do he call this I am? It's so significant because it comes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. When Moses prepared to leave the burning bush, he asked God, who should I say is sending me back to Egypt to do this great thing? And God says to him, tell them that I am sent you. That's why we get that song great I am. The only one called I am is God and Jesus is saying I am God. In John 10:29 through 33 he says, "My Father who has given me uh, given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one." And then listen to this, the Jews look at their response. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him and Jesus answered them, "I have shown you many good works from the father, for which of them are you going to stone me? And Jesus answered them, it is not for good works that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. So this is one of the most beautiful things about Jesus. Okay. And I love what John Piper says about this, that he, he loves when Jesus exalts himself, because when Jesus exalts himself, Jesus is showing his love for us. How is that true? Because the more that Jesus exalts who he truly is, and it progressively increases throughout the the gospels, the more that he does this, the more dangerous it becomes for Jesus. And so the more that Jesus shows you who he really is, the more dangerous it is for Jesus, the more he loves you. And we see this finally in Mark 14, when he's on trial and they just can't get, you know, they can't prove that he's performed any blasphemy. So finally, You know, the high priest just stands up and just says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Which means, are you the Christ, the son of God? And in verse 62, Jesus said, finally, he just goes all out and says, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And then they marched Jesus to the Romans, they beat him and they walk him to the cross. Listen, Jesus wasn't killed for claiming to be good. He was murdered for claiming to be God. So if you're a metamodernist, if you're a Mormon, if you're a Christian, you need to understand this one thing about Jesus. He claimed to be God. And I think C.S. Lewis has a great quote in Mere Christianity that uh, I think is really important. If you're a meta metamodernist and you're exploring Christianity, you've got to hear this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, I'm trying here, this is C.S. Lewis, to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that o- people often say about him. I'm talking about Jesus. They say this, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is one thing we must not or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Let's see, C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity, just a brilliant quote. And so what it means is, listen, the Gospels will reveal a real intent by Jesus to claim that he is God and that he is one with the Father. Not one in the sense of mission and doctrine, as Mormon teaching teaches, but in the truest sense that they are one, that Jesus is the creator God. John chapter 1, it says that he is before all things. And Colossians 1 says that he's created everything, and in him all the fullness of God dwells. In John 8, he says that he is the great I am. In 1 John 3, he is perfect. In John 10, he is the son of God. In Revelations 19, he's the king of Israel. In Acts 4, his name is the only name by which man can be saved. That's who Jesus is. So Nathan was right, but he had no idea how much greater Jesus really was. And I feel the same. I'm with you, Nathaniel. Jesus is greater than anyone could ever explain to us. He is God in every sense of the word. Now, as a Christian, I'm on mission. And if you're listening to this and you're a Christian, you're on mission. So I think there's some relief we can get from this. Understanding of him as son of God, king of Israel, who Jesus really is. Okay, because I think it's silly to think that we, in all of our goodness, that we could be so good as people that people are going to see us and go, oh, I see Jesus. Okay, yeah, we're going to see aspects in us. But I want you just to imagine for a second, okay? If you had never seen the sun in your entire life, think about what you know about the sun. But imagine if you never saw the sun in your entire life, not once. Do you think that you would be able to deduce how magnificent and how powerful the sun is by only looking at the moon? No way, no way. Now you could say that that light has to come from somewhere because that moon is just a big white rock. So where does it light come from? It could give you an indication that there must be some kind of source of light. But Christian, listen to me, my beloved brother and sister, let the weight off for a second. Jesus doesn't need you to shoulder all the weight of godliness. He simply needs you to invite your friends to come and see that he is God, the son of God, the king of kings. And now let's check out what he says about the Son of Man. Let's go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 50. Let's pick it back up. Jesus answers Nathanael, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending and descending. On the Son of Man. Now this is such an amazing passage. He calls himself the Son of Man, and let's kind of let's kind of screech back a little bit in verse fifty-one, where he says, "You're going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on that Son of Man." Now it's this is a reference back to Genesis. Okay, in Genesis, I think it's twenty-eight. That's right, Genesis chapter twenty-eight. Jacob, maybe you heard of him. He's the father of the twelve tribes. So Jacob is traveling between Beersheba and Haran. And as he's traveling, he gets really tired. He falls asleep. And as he lays his head on a rock, he has a dream. And in verse 12 of chapter 28, it says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Right, So heaven has just opened up. And behold, the angels of God were what? They were ascending and descending on the ladder skip down to verse 16. And Jacob woke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Let's think back what Jesus said. Gate of heaven is Bethel. Bethel. That's why they eventually call it that. The house of God. Bethel. So what does this mean? What is Jesus trying to say? He says that the son of man, whoever he is, which he's referencing to himself, Jesus, is the ladder of Genesis 28. Now you go, wait a second. So Jesus is a ladder. That's very weird. It's, it's giving you a picture. And here's the two things that you have to understand. As the son of man, Jesus is The final decisive connection between heaven and earth. Let me say it again. Jesus is the final decisive connection between heaven and earth. And number two, Jesus is our Bethel. He is where we meet God. He is where we go. You don't have to go to a temple. As 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, all right? For do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? If you want to meet with God, you do not need to go to a church. You don't need to go to your closet. You don't need to go to a temple. You don't need to go to Mecca. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. You just got to go to Jesus. He is the son of man. He's the final decisive connection between heaven and earth, and he is where we meet God. So that's what Jesus is referencing there. But where do we, why does he call himself the son of man? He calls himself actually the son of man more than anything else. And there's two great reasons. Number one comes from Daniel chapter seven. It's really important you understand this, Christians. Daniel seven is a, uh, Daniel's having a vision and in a night vision. It says, behold, he says, I saw in a night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. There came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, which is the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given, listen, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So what Jesus is saying when he's saying he is the Son of Man, he is claiming that he is the one who came like a son of man, to the ancient of days, who has glory and kingdom and dominion and authority over peoples and nations and languages, he is the one in Daniel's vision. That's a big claim. It's a powerful claim. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus chose this, you know, great title repeatedly. But here's the thing: the son of man also carries another like another sense to it. It's the claim of Daniel chapter seven, but it's also, it has a lowly sense to it. And I think this is why Jesus chose this more than the other ones. It's because Jesus is choosing the son of man because we are also son of Men. Like I'm a son of a man. Maybe you're a daughter or a son of men. And so in a way, Jesus is the great and amazing son of man uh, who comes to the ancient of days, but he's also one who comes like us, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who put on flesh like us who felt the heat of the day and felt pain and felt hurt and felt tragedy, felt excitement and joy. He felt what it's like to be us. It came to be one of one of us. Jesus is God incarnate. He is king of heaven and earth. And he came down to earth and he allowed men to murder him. And in doing so, the line became a lamb and that lamb was slain for us. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And three days later at dawn, God vindicated Jesus when he raised him from the dead, showing that he truly has defeated sin and death and that all of the wrath for sin was propitiated in Jesus. It was satisfied. It was exhausted in Jesus. And when he gets to be our savior and our atoning sacrifice, because he also was a man. And now, because he's been raised, he sits at the right hand of the Father with all authority to forgive. He is the eternal one who has an eternal kingdom, who's going to rule the nations. He's gonna, he is king of all. This is who Jesus is. And now I want to invite you to come and see for yourself. Open up your Bible this week. Come to see Jesus. Come to the Gospels and read what he says. Interact with him and meet with him. Don't just listen to preachers. Don't just listen to podcasts. Don't just listen to your friends and your Bible study leaders. Go and meet him. Come and see who Jesus really is. And I hope you have a great week of worship as you do. Blessings.